Hello, I'm Abigail, and this is The Eco Enthusiast, a podcast where we explore the world of everyday people making a difference in the environmental movement. From busy parents to community leaders, we chat with a diverse group of individuals who are using their skills and passions to create positive eco change in their communities and beyond. Whether you're just starting your sustainability journey or you're a seasoned pro, we hope to inspire and empower you to take action and make a positive impact on our planet. So join us and let's start building a better future together. Today, I'm speaking with environmental journalist, Dr. Gretchen Miller. Gretchen has had a lengthy career in environmental journalism in Australia, working at the Sydney Morning Herald and ABC Radio National. Her most recognized works include Homeland, an audio documentary series that explores the human relationship with our natural world, and The Independence, a podcast that took us into the lives of the female-led teal independent movement. These were the women who stepped up to face our climate reality when the leaders of the two-party political system would not. Gretchen documented these candidates leading up to the election, an election that changed the Australian political landscape. I sat with Gretchen after she'd just been notified that she'd won the Dean's Award for her doctorate in environmental communication and podcasting. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Gretchen Miller. Thank you so much for joining me today, Gretchen. It's a pleasure to have you here. My first question is, when did you fall in love with nature? When did this begin for you? You know, I mean, I looked at your, all your excellent questions before we came to talk and, um, and thought how fresh they were, but this, this particular question is one I often ask interviewees and I, myself, and I think when I most consciously remember it was perhaps when I was 12 and I moved from London to Australia and I made some friends there, one of whom I'm still friends with, you know, what, 32 years, 42 years later. And she took me up to her farm in Western Australia uh, in the sheep belt, I think. Anyway, they ran sheep and it was granite rock country. So granite rock and paddock, basically quite harsh and yet so phenomenally beautiful. And we lived on the Swan River in Perth and we walked along it every day together as as, as friends. And we interacted with that water all the time. And I think perhaps I started to get myself my sense of self with nature um, quite clearly at that point. And from then on, perhaps I was open to those relationships, but I grew up in London and I climbed trees. And when I think about my sense of the natural world, I've written about it in and, and recorded about it in a, in a, a, a program called, um, the trees project in which I talk about the curves of the childish world versus the sharp corners of the adult world and how you're much more attuned to the shape of trees and the complexity of a patch of grass as a child than you are when you're an adult. And as a radio maker and a podcast maker, I've been very concerned with thinking about those 
moments in which you make those connections and you remember that childish self and how much more connected you were. I remember that when I was a kid growing up in London, there was an enormous um, horse chestnut tree. And I don't know if you have horse chestnuts where you are, but they're these sort of red, uh, green balls with spikes on them. And uh, over time they ripen. And when they split, they reveal this thing called a conker, C-O-N-K-E-R. And a conquer is, is, it starts off when it comes fresh out of the, 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 the pod, the most exquisite and deep mahogany browns, and then it dries and becomes this really hard little nut. And we used to have these conquer fights in the playground. So yeah, I guess, look, I don't know if there was a moment when I went, oh, hello, this is the natural world, but. I have all these sensory memories. You've had like an incredible career uh, so far. I mean, it's it's incredible what you've done on Radio National. But what made you focus, like obviously you fell in love with nature, but what made you decide to focus your career in this area? What was the reason behind that? Look, I mean, I think things happen by accident, right? Don't they in your career? You don't set out to do it. But I suppose my connection to the natural world continued when I moved to Sydney from Perth. So lots of moving around, as I suspect you have too. And uh, I was 17, turning 18. And then I did a degree in music in composition. And I, one of the things we studied was music concrete, which is kind of composing with the sounds of the natural world. And uh, I was entirely unemployable. Um, <laughs> so that, that that undergrad study took me four years and there was a year of messing around at a different university before that. So it was five years and then it was like, okay, I've, I've got this degree. I then went traveling for a year and what do I do with it? And um, I didn't know. And I was very lost for a year and a half after that. So it was quite a long time before I was able to think about what work I could do and I was just scraping by as, as as students do and what made me decide to focus on that I think during that time I spent a lot of time I met a guy and you know the one good thing to come out of that not very good but quite long relationship <laughs> yeah uh -oh, was he was a, a country boy and we did a lot of travel and camping in the New South Wales bush and then further afield in clapped out cars we would go off you know and travel all the way to the Gulf country and across to Darwin and down through the centre and I found my peace in the natural world and I fell in love with it and I was very concerned with the environment and I, you know, in that un awful unemployed 18 months, I joined, uh, volunteered for the Total Environment Centre and then I met someone who helped me start up random, a career in journalism, in print journalism. But, you know, I think at that point I just realised how important the environment was to me. So then I started this random career in... And I think by that stage, I'm just in journalism at the Sydney Morning Herald as a writer, as a journalist. <laughs> I had a Bachelor of Music. I mean, I was utterly how, So how did you get that? Like, how did you, how did, that, how did you go from Bachelor of Music to working as a journalist? 
Oh, well, being unemployed for 18 months, I thought, well, I've got to do something. And I went and volunteered at an environment center, Yeah, you know, stuffing envelopes. And I met someone there who just said, look, he, he was starting his career at the Herald and, you know, was a bit of a darling. Somehow he had become a darling of the newspaper. And so he helped me in. And oh, then I was a very tenacious person. And I just went, okay, well, this is my chance yeah. not to be unemployed which is a horrible situation for any young person to be in so yeah. I just put everything into it and you know made the best of a probably a not great fit but then you know in that time I was still performing and doing my music and yada yada and I started other study and I thought radio might be a good fit for me and so I sort of tilted my hat at that and eventually I got a little artist residency i mean it was just so amazing that they even had these but there was an artist residency and there was a radio arts practice and i persisted until i kind of broke into that thing seemed to work with the music and create it's kind of you know it's esoteric now when i think about it but at the time i don't know it was just like you're an artist and you want to do your art and here's this place where you can do it on in on air and there's a great tradition in Europe of radio arts and that place had a, where I was working at the ABC, where I was sort of pitching ideas and doing my best to keep work, working there, um, also doing journalism work as well, because I've had this background at the Sydney Morning Herald. You know, I was, I had my finger in many pies, trying really super hard. Nothing, none of it came easy. I had to work so hard to make things happen. But I was just always very connected to the natural world. You know, I was with this guy and we traveled and we went bush, you know, frequently. And I started to focus on that in my storytelling and radio and I guess even then we weren't really thinking much about climate change. It was that long ago. It was 25, 30 years ago. But as that narrative started to come through, I think I became very concerned with it. But as a creative person, I cared very much about not just the hammering of the, the terrible facts, but more about exploring what it was that, you know, those social drivers, what it is that that makes us love the nature world if we are a person that does that. And so I did it in various ways. And when Web 2.0 became a thing, gosh, I mean, you know, crikey, we're actually talking about the time when the internet became a thing. It spanned my career. So I think when I left the Sydney Morning Herald in 1999, you know, we had Ask Jeeves and various daggy old um, search engines. And over time that developed the way it did. And then we got a more interactive internet experience that they called that Web 2.0. And media organisations became very excited about working with audiences. So not just disseminating your own ideas and your own thoughts and deciding for audiences what was important, but inviting the audience to be a part of those conversations. And so there was experimenting going on at the ABC. And I got involved with that experimenting and I freaking loved it. 
So I was asking people, what do you remember about a tree that you've loved? Tell me what it means to you to have the, you know, I mean, the news story was that birds were, the bird populations were diminishing year by year. There was always a report of how many birds had been spotted in Australia and, you know, by people who were watching and monitoring birds just in their backyards and year by year, the numbers were dropping. And I thought, well, I, okay, so that's the news story, but what I'm interested here is in here is the, um, is what does it psychologically mean to have these iconic birds, particularly in Australia, like the kookaburra, you know, that everybody knows all around the world. Um, and there are other birds as well. What does it mean to you if they disappear? And I asked that question of our audiences and they responded. And then I started making documentaries about those quite complex psychosocial I think we need a we need a name like psychosocial for you know nature social for for our response to the nature world so it grew from there and what were some of the responses that people like do you remember some of those responses what did people say oh, about yeah. losing the kookaburra like how would they feel if that happened well there i there you can still find it if you look for my name gretchen miller yeah. and the word birdland you'll find the documentary I made out of that and the responses were poetic and deep and meaningful and just extraordinary. And so, you know, I brought my composition skills to those programs and worked with sound engineers who had also like, who were also deeply musical, but we use natural sound to create these whole kind of psychological worlds in audio uh, that went with, the spoken word and the poetry and the writing that people sent me. Um, yeah, and so that became a thing. So I, I don't know, I think the question was, you know, when did I start working climate and environment into my work? Well, I guess it it, it changed over time, you know, to start with I was yeah. very <clears throat> creative and artistic and I was doing things that were very personal. And then over time as the internet developed and as the climate story became uh more intense and more pressing then i started to turn to others to ask them how they felt much as you're doing now right but then i said it in this kind of creative deeply creative experimental way i mean it was yeah it is experimental compared to most radio that you hear around yeah yeah i yeah. mean listening to some of your stuff i mean you you like, okay, that brings me to the next one of your other projects, which is the independence. I listened to a lot of those podcasts. Mm -hmm. Is, you know, you felt. They're much different. They were very, very prosaic, very one on one interviews. Sure. That was all there was to it, except that we did them, we conducted them on country, like on. Yeah. But, but even even that's yeah. like different to a lot of the ones that you hear nowadays. Like like I hear the car door opening. I hear all the I hear a human being, a normal human being living their life, and this is a human being that has done something quite radical, which has gone. I'm going to put my hat in the ring, uh, the political ring. So for me, I, I, like I appreciated that that feeling because I think sometimes one of the reasons everyday people aren't getting up is because they're not see, seeing themselves in these what we see as exceptional people changing their lives to do something for this climate emergency situation. That's very well observed. Yeah, that's that's right. These are ordinary people, just part of the community. Yeah. They're, you, they're you and I. They're 
they are ordin and so what i think what you're talking about there is in australia at the last election which was in 2022 there was this extraordinary shift we've been a two-party political system for a long time with a third party the greens you know occupying a small number of seats and suddenly a bunch of women and they were literally except for one i interviewed 16 and i didn't interview the guy because he wasn't didn't want to do the podcast but i interviewed 16 of maybe 18 or 20 women who were all coming elected i mean they were all they were all selected by their community out of a grassroots movement that said we want to change who represents us in parliament uh and the challenges were largely in the Liberal and National Party seats, which are the Australian conservative and um, country dwellers seats. So essentially quite conservative and getting more so. And these women stood up as independents, not affiliated with any party and said, I'm a doctor, I'm a, you know, I'm a, um, I'm a researcher, I'm a farmer, I'm a university lecturer, uh, I'm a nurse. And I want to stand for parliament and five or six of them won seats. And they, the act of that political defiance from these ordinary women changed the face of Australian politics. And I felt, and, and they were supported by a not-for-profit group called Climate 200 who said, okay, we will give you money. We won't dictate what your policy is, but if you agree with these basic tenets um we will give you money to fund your campaign because obviously as independent ordinary people they didn't have the resources of the major parties yeah and so climate 200 as part of that support did you know a lot of media and promotion and they funded me to go and do some interviews and yeah i was like well we want to know who these women are and we so i want to interview them in a place that's important to them, not just by Zoom or whatever. I want to go to them and talk with them in a place that's important to them and make the place and the community a part of that conversation. And yeah, it was just a one-on-one, -on -one, but it was very intimate, you know, and I'd often spend 90 minutes to two hours with these people as well as, you know, spent if they were out of particular, if they were out of Sydney, I was often, often billeting with them. Um, but I would do these long interviews and then I cut it very tightly back to half an hour so that you just got the essence of that person. Yeah. But also a lot of sound design went into it. doesn't sound like it, but there's a lot of rearranging of sound to make it live as, yeah. A, yeah, as yeah. a portrait of a person, as you say, an ordinary person participating in politics around climate. And that's what I, I loved about it because I think that's it's a huge issue that we have in in this in the storytelling um, is that people don't we're not seeing ourselves which uh, I don't know why I don't know why maybe it's it, maybe it is how we're telling the stories we we're not going to to the to the lengths that you go to Gretchen to get that feeling to feel like you're right next to this this person in their house in their community. Um, you know, they're dealing with in their the kids. In the nature world, most of all. Yeah, Mostly yeah. it was those, those conversations happened in the nature world. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was critical to show that, I think. And I think those women were just, yeah, it was exciting. It was exciting to talk to them all and meet yeah. them. Just go, this is part of a movement. And then we saw, we saw what that happened? movement succeed. And they weren't part of the party machine. So that is why they 
were unfiltered, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was so refreshing to hear people like an everyday person speaking like this and, and you go, hey, this person could could get a bit of power and speak actually speak for their community. This is this is yeah. exciting. Were there any stories out of all of those stories, were there any particular story that you found the most inspiring? Oh, look, I think it's really hard to narrow things down to the most inspiring. Yeah, I think inspiring. overall the story was yeah, unbelievably yeah. In- inspiring. I've just finished a PhD. I was in no shape to start a major project, <laughs> but it just occurred to me one night as, as the Climate 200 was talking about, as Climate 200 was kind of becoming more and more present and I just put in my PhD, I thought, oh, it is a podcast I thought to myself and I sent like this really idle tweet um in the tweet message thing to Simon Holmes Court who's a very wealthy philanthropist here in Australia oh you know I don't know him from a bar of soap he doesn't know me I said look I'm ex-ABC I think you need a podcast and this is how I do it and he got back to me and said I think you're right and I was just in no shape to be setting off on a big project like that. I was exhausted from my PhD and COVID and my adolescent kids' traumas. And anyway, so I just pulled every last bit of energy I had out of the bag to produce that series. I can't remember why I'm telling you that. The whole movement inspired me profoundly, like profoundly. And so my PhD, which was all about the power of podcasting and the human voice in the nature world, that's yeah. what my PhD was about, environmental communication and how podcasting and listening, listening, not just a spoken word, but listening to the sound of the world around you and attuning to it is just critical. And I thought, well, you know, these guys need to bring their humanity um through in a podcast and i and i think that audio form is so much more powerful than the visual you know the listener can really connect i think to the spoken word they can hear the nuance they're not seeing the face they're just hearing the voices that exits the body i mean it's so straight into their ears through earbuds such an intimate format so that it can, they can hear not only the spoken word, but they can also hear the nature world. They yeah. can hear the, the birds calling, the way the wind moves through the landscape. They can hear all those things. And it goes straight into their bodies intimately through the ears in a way that the eyes kind of, you have a barrier between you as you look at things, you know, your objective, you're, you're observing but with listening, it's far more intimate. And so um, it seemed to me that we wanted to bring that intimacy into that new political forum, the intimacy of somebody listening. So they listen to their constituents in ways that the major parties have not done in Australia in I don't know how long. They listen to their constituents, their constituents listen to them, but then all of us need to listen more to the world to hear what it needs and not to interject, to just hear what it needs, Yeah. To pay attention, to attune, which is a listening kind of word, to attune. And then, so, yeah, I mean, it, it all comes together <laughs> in that podcasting is just such a good format for learning to listen. We really do need to... St- to get in tune with our listening skills because we have lost it. We're producing, producing, producing at a hectic rate 
but we're not and getting we're, there. We're we're opining all the time, right? We've all got opinions. We yeah. all think our opinions should be heard, that all opinions are equal. Well, they're kind of not, actually. And if you, instead of sitting with someone, listening to them in order to tell them what your response is to what they're saying or to share your experience of that connects to what they're saying, which is a good thing to do, but to just listen yeah. and to ask another question, yeah. You know, and just to listen and, and to, to hear what they have to say. I think we need to do that more in these times of great political divide, but I also think we need to listen to the voiceless, the yeah. trees, the birds, the animals, the rivers, the the ground. We need to stop and we need to listen. And instead of coming to those places and going, I've got news for you, I know what you need, listening to what those places and those things need and, yes. and offering what you can to support them because if you listen and you attune you find out what they need i think humans for a long long time have not been listening yeah. to the natural world and that is why we are where we are today yeah we just want to force on them our opinions i believe this should be a field of wheat you know and I believe this field of wheat needs a whole load of fertilizer and a whole load of pesticides. But if you listened, you might find out that, okay, well, if you allowed some of the creatures to live there, then you get a natural balance where some creatures eat the insects. And sure, you might have to share some of your, you know, what, what you've grown with the animals and the insects, but that's okay because in the end it's better for the earth and we need all of those things so it's symbiotic relationships in order to survive yeah just keep trying to kill it all then we're not going to in order to grow our field of wheat we're not going to survive yeah yeah we're going to destroy the quality of the soil and we're not going to survive yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i know I, I completely agree i completely agree with you it is so much about that just taking about pausing and listening it's kind of a simple a simple thing that we've forgotten how to do like you, you've obviously learned you've got you know so much knowledge and so much expertise in this area of environmental journalism <laughs> yes, I don't do. know I don't know <laughs> a lot of it goes in one ear and out the other I've forgotten a whole lot. Well, the fact that you said, I don't know, anyway. is like a you know sign of wisdom. So, uh... <laughs> I don't know. a sign of middle age. <laughs> I've forgotten so much. But, okay, what, what do, does your gut say? What do you think? Why, why are we still here at this point where people aren't connecting the dots? People aren't, like the everyday person is not stepping up to make these changes or put their hat in the ring. What is... What are we missing here? And do you think, with the in terms of journalism and storytelling as a whole? I think we're not listening. Yeah, yeah. I think it comes down to that we're not listening. We we aren't. We aren't listening. We aren't listening to maybe the the audience. I, I don't know. The, well, I think the audience. I don't think anyone's listening. However, um, that's not true. There are a lot of people who are listening. There yes. are a lot of people who are tuning. Look, you know, for a long time as well, the science, science is showing us what's wrong. But for a long time as well, science was all, oh, we're objective, we're not involved, we're outside this process. The fact is we're not outside any of it. We're deeply embedded in all of it. And 
you know, it was just this mind body split that began with Descartes and it can get in the fucking bin. We can't afford to split our mind and our body. Our mind and our body are united in the in the one sort of flesh bag, if you like, and that flesh bag has its toes in the dirt. We can't afford the mind-body split. We can't afford to minimise the, the body's role in the way that we exist in the world. You know, and I do think that this is also connected to feminism. For a long time, women were lesser because we were fecund and fertile and, you know, we, we were apparently hysterical, although I honestly think that I see a lot of hysterics in history and largely um, expressed by men shooting and killing each other and <laughs> taking over everything. I mean, I think those things are the hysterical acts myself. But anyway, yeah. you know, um, we the, it began with the mind-body split and intellectually, philosophically, socially, that's been a massive problem for us and we need to remember how connected our sweat is with the microbes that eat our sweat that make up our bodies that populate the soil you know yeah we just have to start remembering those things and a lot of that again comes down to listening yeah yeah so, so I'm you're, rambling. You're really going to have to do no, <laughs> but so your recommendation, like imagine there's like a a journalist, a, a journalist that wants to is working on communicating this issue to the audience and or a podcaster or or anyone or even like a, a story, a children writing, a person writing a children's storybook. What advice? Do you have any advice for that person? Look, I don't feel like the font of all wisdom here <laughs> at all. Um, but I think we have to continually connect it to the personal. Yeah. We have to we have to be able to relate to something as if it's happening in our back garden. I think yes. and I think that's natural. I think that's fine. I think we are tribal creatures that like to have home ground or in Australia, if you're indigenous, you would call it country. But if you, if you are like us uh, migrants who come from many different places, you can still feel a connection to place. And I think if you're telling stories, you need to connect it to place. So less of the abstract and more of the archetypal that connects us all. I mean, I, I grew up on myths and legends right you know i grew up in the 70s my parents were australians fleeing parochialism landed as young ignorant people in london but just were alive to different cultures and they gave me the myths and legends of various indigenous peoples around the world and it was those stories from First Nations Canadians, for example, or Eskimos or Australian First Nations um, Indigenous people and the fairy tales of Europe that I consumed like mad as a kid. And they all have something in common and those stories tell about connection to the living world and sometimes our, the connection is so deep that we transmogrify or we we switch between being a human and a seal person um, or a human and a, a, a rock or a river. I mean, all of these, all of those mythologies have those things in common, including European um, mythologies. 
all of them, Asian mythologies. The stories were deeply personal, but they awoke me to the importance of that relationship between a human and their home ground, which is a term that I explore quite a lot in my PhD, is what home ground is and can be, what it means to people. And I think, so if you are a storyteller, if you're a journalist, if you're a writer, that they always have to come back to that, some kind of expression of that connection that we all share if we care to remember. Yeah. But, you know, I read, when I was a kid, I read, um, you know, First Nations, as I said, Canadian and American stories. Living in London, I didn't have a clue, but I connected to those stories because they told me about a connection to nature that I felt that I too shared. Yeah. So that's that's the important key, yeah. Yes, yeah mm, yeah it's the it's the rounded edges of the nature world compared to the yeah the half square edges of the of the adult world and you know i think we can cap we can capitalize on that there's this uh philanthropist i love i don't know if you've heard of her work her name is lynn twist and she wrote the book the soul of money and this particular book kind of gave me a lot of hope in terms of of the environmental problems that we have and and all of the injustices that we have in the world, anyway. Uh, I, you know, I would recommend this book if if you haven't read it. It's on. It's now on the reading list at Harvard University, which gives me a bit of hope because it's like the concept oh. that money has a soul. And I was like, wow, if they're reading this, that gives me a touch of hope. Anyway, um, she, uh, you know, she fights for a lot of like uh, environmental rights and women's rights and so on. And she thinks that right now we need to have the grandmother energy come back in in this time of chaos, which I think is, you know, linked with what you're saying about listening, that big stillness, patience, and that real kind of, um, you know, unwavering fight, but gentle fight for life or consistent fight for life. It's never going to stop. Um, and there's this other little activity I love called grandma's advice where you have to, you know, imagine that you're 85 years old or older, hopefully, and um, you're passing down on some advice to your to your grandchildren. What advice would you pass down to your grandchildren, uh, Gretchen? I can't imagine having grandchildren, having, <laughs> you know, just raised my own kid to the edge of adulthood. Um but I, I guess my advice for anybody is just keep listening. Yeah. Like that's my advice for people who sometimes struggle to participate well in conversation is just listen, listen. Yeah. Don't talk over, just listen. Yes. Yeah. And look, it's hard learned advice. I mean, it's hard learn. It's a hard lesson to learn. I'm a, a journalist and, you know, when I was young, I had all my opinions and they were all in a row and I knew exactly what I thought about everything and I was very judgmental and hard. And I guess it would have done me well to learn to listen a little earlier, but I, I was very fortunate in this career in that, you know, that I, this accidental career in that um, it taught me to listen actually, because what was of value is what the other person said taught me to listen and then it taught me to ask questions to find out more and I learned slowly slowly took a long time not to in interrupt and spout off but to listen <laughs> I think it's just yeah. my advice to everybody for everything um and if children learn to listen to one another they can be kinder sooner <laughs> 
Okay, so another one of these questions I have here, obviously in our daily lives, we have to make a lot of changes with this uh, ecological crisis that we're in. Like we're, be, you know, if you're alert and aware and listening, we are, we, are, we are hearing that we have to make some changes. So a lot of changes have to be made, but what is one thing you hope never changes in this world that is radically changing right now? Oh, I think human curiosity. I hope that curiosity, I hope that we all maintain a spirit of curiosity. And I think it's that curiosity that perhaps brought us to this point, but alongside some really special things that we found out, we've also done a bit of damage with our curiosity, but I think it's, you know, I think it's our best chance is to remain open and curious. Yeah. That's all I got. Cause yeah. I haven't got a lot of wisdom. Look, honestly, I'm exhausted. I'm 54. I've done this for a long time. It hasn't been easy and I'm shattered. And all I want to do right now is run away and, um, in the bush and listen to the nature world and um, participate at all in what has to happen next. There's a big part of me that just goes, oh, thank goodness I'm old enough. Well, I've, I've got to this point. I've done as the best, the very best I can. And now can somebody else please? And, and they are, you know, and the different generations going to have different ways of doing things and that sort of thing. But so I don't have a lot of wisdom in that area. I'm just so tired. But uh, I think curiosity is what I hope we maintain in the super local sense and also in the global sense. So be curious about what's in your backyard, but also be curious about what's happening far from you. I mean, I had another question for you, but I think you already answered it, which is, was what do you think? Do you have hope that we're going to pull through? in this climate crisis and what do you think will pull us through? So I guess it would be curiosity again, no? The curiosity is going to... I think curiosity and listening will yeah. pull us through. And to be honest, I've had very little hope quite a long time, yeah. but I'm beginning to feel like I'm seeing public conversations around things starting to turn around. I can't comprehend how a, a system, a complex organism like the earth can possibly turn around. Yeah. It's like the Titanic to me, you know, we're on a path. Yes. We're on a path. This is a very large complex organism. Once the things start melting, you know, just because we stop suddenly stop burning coal. Yeah. Things are already like the earth is, it's heating, things are melting. It's that, what do they call it? Cascade effect. Yeah. Um, there are lots of terms for it, but maybe it's too late. I, I don't know. Yeah. But I am starting to see really interesting people show signs of hope. Uh, for me, I think the word is that is better is courage because I think courage is much more active. Maybe courage is like active hope, but courage, you have to have courage to act. And again, you know, my PhD explores courage in all its forms um, yeah. as a philosophical and cultural concept. When I asked people through my PhD, again, I reached out to audiences and I asked them what they do um, and how they feel as they enact rescues of landscapes or animals, you know, how they feel as they dig their fingers in the soil, as they look that individual animal in the eye. And I sort of analyzed the 
the responses that I got and I found that courage was what was present. Um, courage to act. Yeah. Physically. And, and I, I, I think that perhaps we are building courage and I, I, I'm not scientific enough to know whether it's going to, yeah, whether we're going to be okay. I, you know, we'll be okay in some humans will be okay in some sense. The earth will also be okay in some sense might not be the way that we see it, but it will regenerate in its own wild way. And whether we're here or not to witness it is actually neither here nor there for me as humans. I, I just hope that this beautiful little thing on which we travel is um, going to survive in some way. And I think that it probably will. It's interesting how we have to find the right word for these things. That's why I have enthusiasm for myself because I had no hope. Like I was like, no, it's, mm. it's, we're done in dust. <laughs> I was really dark for a long time. Yeah. And I was like, and I had to find the right word that made sense to me to, to continue, <laughs> to continue and have find what, the energy. What word was that for you? Enthusiasm, enthusiast, to be enthusiastic. Um, because for, for me, that reminds me of being in the moment. Like right now, I'm enthusiastic to be here right now, try to do my best. And what what happens in the future is really none of my business because and how could I possibly know? How could I possibly have any idea? <laughs> so that's the word I go with. But I yeah, courage I think is definitely an important one. An empowering word. Like when you feel like you're a courageous person, it you feel good about yourself. It's an active action based word. Yeah. You know, a courageous hero is taking action. Yeah, uh, they're not just sitting around going, "Oh, I hope my girlfriend turns up." It's like I'm going to go and get my girlfriend or uh, my boyfriend, and I'm going to get them, and I'm, you know, we're going to we're going to prevail. So it's an active word. Yeah, I like it for that. But you can have slow courage as well. You know, you can have courage that unfolds over time when you just keep going back to that place to keep replanting it for that endangered species that may or may not come when the trees are mature 25 years later. I look at that in, in the, in that show Birdland that I made that act of great courage. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. And my last question is what habit do you think an eco enthusiast needs to pick up? Oh, look, it gets back to listening again. Yeah. Yeah. I just think pay attention, speak when you need to and gather other voices to speak with you, but also pay attention and listen. Yeah. I would never tell a woman, for example, to be quiet, speak, speak your truth, but also listen. Because in listening, you find out you're not the only one, right? Yeah. I really, really appreciate all that advice. And and thank you for the um, the conversation today, Gretchen, because... I've, I've had a great time and I just love, I love hearing all of your thoughts on all of this. It's very inspiring well, and very like real. I go along. Well, that's what <laughs> I love about it. It's very real. I love someone that's just, yeah. you know, done a PhD in something and says, I don't know. I love that because obviously you do know Gretchen, but it's just, it's oh, just, it's just without I, the I ego there. Yeah, yeah, look, I, I know that there's a lot of really admirable people I've been lucky enough to talk with, that is all, and um, I can't retain much, but anyway, look, you know, just keep listening, I think, the voices of the ignorant, I think we have to all learn to listen to those who have experience and who have done the work, 
yeah you know who've done the work not just done their research on youtube but have seriously done the work we need to listen to those people and we need to amplify their voices yeah and uh we need to challenge ignorance so we do need to speak up but we do also need to listen more yeah yeah i don't know it's not much of a way to end is it (laughs) No, I think it's the perfect um, way to end. Thank you for inviting me on. It's really um, been delightful to talk with you. I'm usually asking the questions, so this is kind of fun. Thanks so much, Gretchen. Okay. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Gretchen. Please do check out her incredible series, Home Ground. There's a link to it in the show notes. It's stunning. I did just that after I finished chatting with her. I went and listened to Home Ground. It's it's an experience I'll tell you that go along and check it out she kindly let me leave you today with a piece from the trees project which was a part of home ground so have a little listen and then head over and check it out Uh, we also have our Facebook group the eco enthusiasts where you can find all this information and we will be discussing the different guests and the podcast have a lovely week and enjoy this beautiful work from Gretchen Miller's home ground the trees project we'll see you next time three pine trees huge hairy hounds with deep rough barks watch over our humble timber home they nip the heels of sheepish clouds they molt all over the roof Yet I fear the flames that could turn our dogs against us, transform their shade into an orange glow, convert every placid twig and needle into rabid biting embers. And I fear the thunderous winds that could push their huge muscle-branched bodies onto our fragile frame. With love and fear's twisted leashes, I behold our three pine trees. The Watch Pines by Cameron Simmons.